Today's guest on Control-Alt-Delete is Yasmin Khan. She is an award-winning author, campaigner and cook, and she's passionate about sharing people's stories through food. I absolutely love Yasmin. I think that she is so interesting. She is one of those people who you just want to talk to for hours. And I feel like her bio is so long that I'm going to be here for hours if I try and get through it all. But um, after studying law and social policy, she spent a decade working as a human rights campaigner for NGOs and grassroots groups. And she ran high profile national and international campaigns with a special focus on conflict in the Middle East. In 2013, she suffered burnout and we talk about it on the podcast, kind of how that happened and what she did to kind of get back on her feet. But she switched careers and I find it really interesting how she did it and how food played a big role in that. She ran a Kickstarter back when Kickstarter was quite new as she wanted to write a book that would offer a window into Iran and tell the stories of food through the people who live there and the people that she met. The result of this Kickstarter campaign was a best-selling debut book, The Saffron Tales, Recipes from the Persian Kitchen. And it did so well. It was chosen by the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal and the BBC Food Programme as one of the best cookbooks of 2016. Yasmin's second book is out now. It's called Zaytun, Recipes and Stories from the Palestinian Kitchen. And it was published a few months ago. So it's really amazing to catch up with Yasmin about this book and how um, it's a number one bestseller on Amazon already. But we talk about how you don't have to have millions and millions of followers to have a successful project launch. So we talk about community and micro community and um, how that's more important than just building followers online. And her latest book has been heralded by the late, great Anthony Bourdain as a moving, hugely knowledgeable and utterly delicious book. So if that is not a testimonial and endorsement, I don't know what is. We had so much to say on this episode and um, yeah, I really, really hope you enjoy it. On Yasmin's site, I was just looking at her website. Um, the, my favourite bit of her bio is this. Yasmin likes to sing karaoke, take bangra classes and practice headstands. And she firmly believes in the undervalued power of kindness. So she's a really good egg and a really talented person. And I hope you enjoy this episode. Here it is. I'm so excited to finally be with Yasmin Khan, who, well, we met at Melissa Hemsley's, didn't we? We did and last this Christmas. Is the best place to meet new podcast guests. Just to start off, I guess I don't know actually a lot about your backstory, really. I only know and read your work now, but what, where did your career start and when did you change into, I guess, what you're doing now? Well, these days I'm a cookbook author and a broadcaster, um, kind of mainly focusing on the intersection between food, travel and politics. Uh, But my career started very differently. Um, I did a law degree at Sheffield Uni and then I came down to London and did a master's in social policy and went into political activism as a career path. So I'd always been like super political as a teenager, but then, you know, started becoming a a, a campaigner, a paid campaigner for NGOs, for trade unions. Um, 
I worked on some really high profile cases, um, such as like the Jean Charles de Menezes case, the Brazilian guy who was shot dead by police at Stockwell Station. Um, and then in the latter part of that section of my career, I focused on the Middle East and human rights in the Middle East, working for the charity War on Want, um, which was a really exciting and dynamic time for me. Really, I'm really passionate about uh, changing the world and, and making things different and challenging and standing up for injustice. And so I was really doing my dream job. And, and a lot of what you do now still has that thread. You obviously have not left that behind. But what made you want to, because you launched a Kickstarter in 2013 for your book, what made you want to do it that way? Because it sounds like you could have done it a few other ways. Yeah, well, I, in that classic way of someone who's living their best life in London and doing their dream job, I then just had a burnout at the age of 30, like just like a decade of just being at every party and every protest kind of took it out of me. And I think I just, I wasn't, I didn't, I hadn't really learnt the, the tools or the skills of what it meant to be passionate about your work, but also set boundaries for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, so I reckon a lot of yeah. a lot of people now, even if you're doing online activism or even when you're loving your job, whatever that might be, I think that is so crucial to know. Actually, you're allowed boundaries even if you love your work. Absolutely, and also remembering that like it's a long game, that it really is a marathon, not a sprint. And I think I just didn't have that. I mean, I think one of my greatest skills is my passion and enthusiasm. But often our greatest skills can often be our downfall, and it's always I think about that balance. And how did your burnout manifest? Because I think it's sort of different for everyone, but um, I mean, essentially you're just exhausted to the point of there's no more fuel in the tank. Yeah, it's like a bank balance, like going into like more and more overdraft and more and more debt. So over a period of months, um, I kept getting ill a lot, you know, colds, sore throats, really basic physical stuff, which is really easy just to pop a painkiller, go to work, pop a painkiller, go to work. Um, and then I started to get this creeping exhaustion that I couldn't shake off. Um, and then, you know, I was working on a really intense campaign. Um, I've had like a really messy relationship breakdown. I'd had a couple of deaths in the family. And I think it all just came together to make me one day just walk into the office, say to my boss, I need some time off. Him being like, oh, we don't really have the time now. And I just remember putting my head on my, on the desk and just crying mm-hmm. and going, I can't do this anymore. I can't do this anymore. Um, so it was, it was just very, very dramatic, actually. And he was like, maybe you should go home. So I went home and then got signed off on sick leave um, and had huge anxiety. I mean, I was, you know, I was working on issues to do with the Afghanistan war, on Israel-Palestine, and the war on Libya had just started. I remember I'd see a newspaper and it had anything to do with war or something. I would have like, an anxiety attack. Mm-hmm. Um, and I realised that it would take me a bit longer to um, recover. So my work were great and they gave me six months six months off and said go and get yourself better and I I went a bit eat pray love kind of used my savings and went to Thailand and did lots of yoga and did lots of kind of resting um and it was then when I suddenly thought actually I do love what I do and my values and my my mission you know are unchanged but maybe there's just a better way that I can do it which is healthier for me and it perhaps is more effective mm. um, and that's when I started this journey into food writing. That is amazing because I remember you sort of describing it as a weird blessing in disguise obviously no one wants to be burnt out but it's like a, it is a signal isn't it? 
if you'd have asked me at that time, I would have told you that it was the worst thing that had ever happened to me. I'd had to leave a job I love, not know if I could ever go back to campaigning, which I'd done since I was 16. Um, I was so ill for a few months that even like a walk to the shops and back and I'd be asleep for the whole day. I got diagnosed with chronic fatigue. Um, I, oh, it was just, even thinking about it now makes me quite emotional because I was so scared. I was just like, who's, how am I ever gonna date someone if I'm this ill? How am I ever gonna work? Um, but it is that classic thing of sometimes, you know, we can't see when we're in a circumstance that's challenging how it can help us grow or where it can come from it. And now I think, God, this incredible career that I've built for myself, two best-selling books, you know, working with my heroes like Anthony Bourdain, you know, being doing these incredible projects that fly me to Japan with organisations like Roads and Kingdoms or running supper clubs around London. Um, this really fun and vibrant life that I've got only actually came out because I had to take a massive step out of another life. Yeah. And do you get any warning signs or do you know, do you spot certain things now where you're like, okay, I know I'm quite far from burnout maybe, but I do know that I need to rein it in. Yeah, I mean, I think with me, if I'm really honest, it's probably going to be a lifelong struggle. Um, and I definitely had a period earlier this year and I was just like, oh no, it's happening again. You know, I kept getting kind of uh, chronic kind of health issues. Um, but I think I've definitely learned... Um, uh, and I think one of the main things, and actually, again, I think you talk about this very well in your book, The Multi-Hyphen Method, is, is really prioritizing rest for myself in a way that I never used to be able to do. Mm-hmm. Saying no to things and really following my intuition. Like um, this morning, I was supposed to meet someone for an interview um, about my book. And I really thought to myself, God, you know, I can just do this on the phone. Why am I meeting this person? And I got up this morning and I was like, you just phone them and say, you're not going to meet them. You'll do it over the phone. It'll be 20 minutes done and dusted. My intuition was so strong. And I, but I thought then I kind of overread it. And then I, I got to where we were supposed to be meeting. And I got stood up because the, the journalist forgot because it was a bank holiday. And I just sat there drinking my tea and I went, what a brilliant lesson that you should always follow your intuition. And since that thing two hours ago I've since made another four decisions for the next week that are complete gut feeling things and Mm. I think often we all have quite a strong inner compass but because of busyness or shame or guilt we override it so I think that's been my main thing um which has made a big difference but with the kickstarter because that was so successful but um quite scary isn't it to launch something when you don't really know what the reaction is going to be how was that process? Well, that was really fascinating because um, this was quite early on. I think Kickstarter had only been around in the UK for a few months when I launched mine. And I only heard about it from friends in the US because it had launched a couple of years earlier. So I think for many people in my network, when I ran my Kickstarter campaign, which now just seems ridiculous because crowdfunding is just everywhere, it was the first one time that people had heard of it. Um, and I, uh, you know, I knew that if I wanted to be a, a writer... I wanted to, you know, the goal I'd set myself is that I wanted to write a best-selling book and I knew that I couldn't really do that if I self-published. I needed to get a big publisher. So I'd need material because, you know, I might have written stuff before, but, you know, a food and travel book, my first book, The Saffron Tales, is a food and travel book where I travel through Iran collecting recipes from people and it's that celebration of Iranian life. But I'd need evidence. So I chose Kickstarter as a platform because it's all or nothing. And I thought, well, it's fate. If it's meant to be, you know, you'll get it. 
Um, and I ran a 30-day campaign, which as anyone who's run a Kickstarter will tell you is never 30 days. There's like at least two months or three months you need to do beforehand. And I now coach people on doing crowdfunders. And the biggest kind of misnomer I think people have is they think, oh, it's just so easy. I'll just do a video and put it up there and people will give me money. It really isn't. You know, the best crowdfunders are thought out, you know, months and months in advance. Um, yeah. But it was incredible because the Kickstarter gave me something to this to that to this very day fuels me. It it gave me a community that believed in me right from the beginning. And anyone who's embarked on a creative project will know, you know, there are so many moments of self-doubt, of fear, of wanting to give up, oh I can't do this. But I knew that I couldn't, you know, not because of the money that my you know supporters had given me but because of like the the energetic power and will Mm. that these strangers most of the people that supported me were strangers um you know these people on the other side of the world believed in my project and wanted to see it in the world so I couldn't give up uh and that's amazing because they want the product yeah it's not just that they want to like support you from afar and give you some money it's like no I I actually want this yeah and I I believe in it you know yeah Um, And I think actually that is the real power of crowdfunders. You know, the money, I mean, what I raised 10 grand, which I'm sure, you know, I don't know, maybe through bank loans or credit cards. I mean, people can raise money, but the power of it actually, I don't think was the financial aspect. It was the support and the community. Mm. We're talking about community because I really liked um, what you've said in the past about how your books have been bestsellers and they've been continuously really successful but you have a community and it's not necessarily like millions of followers on Instagram or this weird sort of collective mass that we think we need to do anything creative and I get a lot of emails from really young girls actually saying um you know hi Emma I'd love to do what you're doing but I I don't really have many followers and I'm like oh that's such a shame that you're leading with that as an insecurity because that's not what it's about but society is telling us at the moment you get rewarded for having followers so yeah could you talk a bit about that and how you know it's empowered you actually to know that it's more about the community than anything else absolutely and actually this comes back to what we were talking about um with my burnout um boundaries are really important to me in my work and I'm not someone who naturally loves being on social media so I'm not and I kind of feel okay about that You know, I have a modest following, but you know, I sell the numbers of books that I've sold are more than like, you know, more than five to six times my following. So actually I've realized that even on on platforms such as Instagram, you know, people who have much bigger, you know, bigger networks than me on, on 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 the camera screen, actually it doesn't translate into sales. And that's been really interesting for me just to observe because I think a lot of people can, you know, I I mean, I love social media at the same time. You know, I love the sense of community it fosters. I love the connections I've made and I've got a lot of work through it. Um, But I also think it can foster huge feelings of inferiority. And again, anyone who wanted to start a creative project will know getting out of that sense of fear and inadequacy is often the first step that you need to make in order to do a creative project. So my biggest advice to people starting out is just not even worry about that, to concentrate on creating an authentic product that you believe in, whether that's a book or an album or a business, 
Um, and then the followers will come and the, and the, and the sales will come. Yeah. It's very liberating, actually, like just last year, just even speaking to a few other food, food writer friends who write cookbooks and realizing the difference in Instagram followers versus sales just not correlating. Yeah. It should be very liberating for everyone. <laughs> and also, I think publishers need to believe that a bit more. Because yeah. I have heard lots, you know, quite a few stories recently of people, uh, their book proposals being turned down because they don't have a social media following. And I do think that's sad because a good book is a good book and it shouldn't have to be about anything else. But it's like a marketing channel in its own right. I mean, what what sort of steps did you take to get it out there um, at the beginning? Was it quite physical or to do events or... Even the Kickstarter stuff, did you just start small? Yeah, I started small and I was very strategic. I didn't go to a publisher until I felt I had enough material to really say I'm someone who can do something. Having said that, I didn't have an Instagram account two and a half years ago. So I also think that if, if, you, if you're with the right publishers that see what you're doing is good, and, it, and most importantly, if you write for me, if you write a book that's good, you have to trust that it'll get out there. But um, yeah, so I started off, um, you know, running pop-ups around London, teaching cookery classes, really trying to get people excited about Iranian food. Middle Eastern food is obviously what I specialise in. Um, I then started blogging. Um, and the main thing I found was really useful was just writing for other publications. Like that's how my name got out there. Uh, so I was again, really strategic. I was like, okay, what are the top 30 publications in the US and the UK that I want to write for? Made a list of them, started using my social media really specifically. I pretty much just engaging with the people that I know I want to engage with. And using that as a launch pad for pitching, getting articles and dissemination. Because at the end of the day, if I get an article in The Guardian, it's going to reach a lot more people um, than a blog on my website. And so just being targeted and specific in my social media yeah. was, was really important to me. Did you face any rejection along the way? And if so, how did you deal with it? Yeah, I had a really great lesson, which I can only say now about like two years later, um, two years ago, before, no, three years ago, before Saffron came out. Um, so, you know, my work has always been focused on the written form, but with, you know, broadcast elements. So I do kind of radio and I do kind of, you know, digital travel shows. Um, and before Saffron came out, I came up with a concept for making the book um, into a TV series. And... What's the diplomatic way to say this? Yeah, another production company and a high profile person took the idea. They took me in, I worked with them. I was so new, I didn't sign any contract. I gave away my work for free. I gave away my research for free because I was like, oh, you know. And at the last minute they were like, actually we've decided this other person is gonna do it. So that was huge for me. Um, a, because it was a dream project. B, I'd got really close. Um, but see, it kind of now has really taught me to really value my self-worth. I think that, again, when you're doing career changes, it's really easy to get swept away with doing stuff because you think, well, I'll get something from this or... Yeah, it's just important to know your own value and put boundaries around that as well. Yeah, God, because actually without sometimes that stuff, you, you wouldn't be then as aware in, like, future meetings. Yeah. Like, being burnt is obviously horrible, but... I've had similar things where I'm just like, okay, that was a really annoying way to learn that lesson. Yeah. 
I talk about a lot how we don't know what we're going to be doing in five years time anymore um how do you take each day but also have goals still yeah really good question you know there are so many different elements to my work you know one day I could be researching a book that takes me to a faraway country and involves travel another day I could be like tomorrow I'm running a workshop at Shoreditch House, you know, teaching cookery. Um, another day I could be, you know, recording a radio show for the BBC. Like it's very disparate. Um, but what I do is I, very early on in my career and my transition, kind of developed a personal and private mission statement for what I do. And that now is my barometer for like what projects I say yes to and what I don't. And it's always like, okay, is this in line with my mission? And my mission really comes from my values. Um, So I do that. Um, And then like on a day-to-day basis, I mean, I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very lucky, I think, to count myself as someone who's freelance doing a job that they love. Um, But that also means that, you know, sometimes I have to do jobs that I don't love in order to do the jobs that I do love. So I just try and balance things out. I balance out the things that I need to do financially with the things that are my overall life mission. And um, every year I make sure at the beginning of the year to take like a week to kind of reevaluate everything, look at what's worked, look at what hasn't. Um, And most importantly, you know, constantly be doing more of the things I'm excited about, like if I get an opportunity and my gut feeling is yes, even even if the salary isn't so good, um, I always try and go with that um, because I tend to find that, again, by following our inner compass, we make much better decisions. Mm. Oh my God, I'm exactly the same. I actually sometimes even think of the money jobs as like paying for my uh, creative projects. It's almost like it's paying for itself or it balances out, but... Um, yeah, that's really, really interesting. And also just evaluating what's worked and what hasn't. And being honest about what hasn't worked also, uh, I think is really important. Because um, with this gut instinct thing, so I, I'm, I'm the same, like, you, you know, and I don't know, know, I don't want to generalise, but I think women are really good at it as well. Like, you know when something's up with a friend or with work or with someone, there's just something going on. Is Does that play into food? I know that guts, books... I know they're not like on trend because people have been talking about them for, for centuries, but it all links up, doesn't it? Absolutely. And I think that one of the things that um, has kept me quite grounded and in touch with my intuition is my relationship to food. Um, so my mum was uh, a nutritionist. And so, you know, I always joke that we were kind of eating brown rice salads and green juices in the yeah. 80s. But um, one of the things that she always says to me from a healthy eating perspective is that we should always follow our real intuition and cravings if we want something. And she was just like, the more you do that, the more you'll start to become in balance with your body because your body doesn't always crave like really sugary fatty things like sometimes your just body really craves something green or sometimes you just really need some protein um sometimes you just need a big bowl of pasta because you need that soothing and i think the more we can develop a healthy relationship with food that follows our intuition um i think the happier we are both in our body and our mind Mm. i love that because that's not saying the good and bad thing yeah that's just saying whatever you need at that point in time one of the other things of my life that I don't tend to talk about so much I um I started a big yoga journey after I had my burnout I remember one of my yoga teachers saying to me you know sometimes just sitting down and having a beer in a really relaxed and present way 
could be your best yoga that week you know I That's think my kind of yoga yeah <laughs> but it's true you know as opposed to all these people that like obsess over how many nutrients they're getting in a smoothie and like stressing over veg over just what they're eating I think we get so much of that because that's really ironic like it's, the idea of stressing yeah. over being healthy yeah but people do it you know I think you see it a lot in um in you know people you know yeah I just think it, it comes out a lot and I think you know we don't Perhaps, you know, anorexia isn't, and bulimia aren't talked about so much anymore because I think we, you know, one of the sad byproducts of some of the wellness trends, many of which have been really positive, have been making people feel a bit worried and inadequate about what they're eating every day. And any doctor anywhere in the world from any tradition will tell you actually stress is a much bigger factor in any of our mm-hmm. unhealthiness than, you know, whether we had a bit of chocolate. Yeah, I put Toffee Crisp on my Instagram the other I day. I saw that, it was so good. And also that quote, that was brilliant. I think oh, you yeah. should say it again. Oh yeah, from Catelyn Moran, that nine out of 10 times, you probably aren't having a nervous breakdown. You probably just need a cup of tea and a biscuit. I mean, but how true, true is that? I feel like I want to write that and frame it. And I put do, it on I mean, I drink so much tea, it's ridiculous. What's I your think... favourite biscuit? Mm, I do love a hobnob. Mm, chocolate but, hobnob. But I don't think people like them. I admit it, I've admitted a lot of things on this podcast, actually. I admitted that I didn't like dogs. Do you know <laughs> what? Actually, okay, this is why... I didn't get any hate. <laughs> I just got a few people coming out of the woodwork going, me neither. Ah. I mean, I'll stroke them and I like yeah. them. Well, do you know what? We're obviously destined to be best friends forever because me and ho- chocolate hobnobs are my favourite biscuit. If we ever need... I don't like dogs either. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Wow, and it's, that's an exclusive. Yeah. Yeah, Are you a cat person? Um, yeah, I suppose I am if I had to choose. <laughs> but I'm not a cat person You're like, either. never make me choose. <laughs> I just don't really like things messing up my space. But um, but yes, I always ask, lastly, um, what you're excited about coming up. But it sounds like you've got so much going on. Um, That's <sighs> my way of asking what's next without, I hate what's next. I've, I'm, I'm banning that. This is just anything in life. I feel exceptionally blessed this year. Um, And what I'm excited about next is really, you know, taking Zaytun, my Palestinian cookbook, out uh, uh, across the world. I'm just planning quite a big US media tour in the new year, which I'm so excited about. Talk a bit about Zaytun. Oh yeah, so um, Zaytun is a food and travel book that celebrates Palestinian food. Uh, for it, I travelled through Israel on the West Bank and Gaza, interviewing Palestinians in their homes and kitchens. Yeah. And it's really a book that is about showcasing a human side of the Middle East, about using food to celebrate our commonality and to show that whoever we are and wherever we come from, we've got more that unites us than divides Mm. us. Uh, It's also got loads of delicious recipes. Um, And yeah, it's just, I mean, it came out only like six weeks ago and I've been blown away with like, you know, the response that it's got. So really excited to kind of take that to the US in the new year for a book tour. It must be so amazing when it's out because... I know most books take a while, but that is, it's a labour of love, isn't it? And it's not a quick, here's my book. You know, there's a lot of work that goes into that. 
I know they take a long time these books you know from the research which I tend to do quite slowly in the countries um, and then all the design and production um, but really beautiful I couldn't be prouder and the my publishers are great <laughs> thank you not that that's the yeah the best selling point it's all great but book covers are important aren't they they're really I mean <laughs> you know you really have to judge a book by its cover sometimes um so I do think they're really important I think your book cover stands out loads as well yeah but that's exciting about America as well yeah have you done that before I have I've spent a lot of time in in the states over the last few years um I absolutely love the energy and creativity especially in places like New York I mean my books have done brilliantly here but I mean my book is even my work is even better received in the US. I think that there, the you know, um, you know, people like Anthony Bourdain, who I had the pleasure of working with last year, you know, they've already carved out a genre that's that's food and travel and politics and stories mm. in a way that I don't think we have so much in the UK. In the UK, it's kind of like people who work in food just or here's a recipe. Yeah. Um, the US is so ahead yeah. of us in a lot of ways when it comes exactly. to like the media and, and storytelling and they just are and um and the dynamism I don't know I mean I just it's just it's like my my feet like land in New York and I get all these opportunities and I just love Americans as well so yeah. super excited about that um and then just actually on a personal level um I'm really looking forward to kind of yeah spending lots of time with my partner this year and um, we've both been really busy with different kind of writing projects so we're just off on a trip coming up soon to the eastern mediterranean so it's just lovely to be able to work on the go yeah. so oh. you can follow me on instagram and get my updates from greece and turkey yes you're a travel power duo i love it well thank you so so much thank you so much it was so that. lovely to speak to you thank you